1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. My name is Lane Davis, and I am your host. Today, I am talking with Dr. Richard J. Bowles. He is assistant professor in the Department of History at Oklahoma State University and the author of Dividing the Faith, The Rise of Segregated Churches in the Early American North. It was published in 2020 by New York University Press. Dr. Bowles, first congratulations on the book, and welcome to New Books in History. Thank you very much. It's great to be here speaking with you. So before we dive into the book, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, just anything you'd like, and what event specifically led you to writing about race and religion in early America? Yeah, so I completed my doctoral studies
0: in American religious history at the George Washington University. But the research questions for this project began when I worked at the Boston African-American National Historic Site. I was a park ranger tour guide uh, on this historical site in Boston, Massachusetts. Hmm. And one of the important sites is the African Meeting House, which was the first African-American congregation started in Boston. And they opened up their meeting house in 1806. And now that meeting house is the oldest extent African-American religious building in the country. Hmm. And this building was really important for the 19th century abolitionist movement. But I, I also knew a little bit about African-American history in Boston and New England uh, before the 19th century. And so working there, I, I sort of wondered, what, what about all the time period before 1805, when this congregation was started? And so the, the first enslaved Africans were brought to Boston, probably in 1638. Um, and there were many more brought in the 18th century. Did any of them participate in a ch- church? And if they did, which churches? And I wasn't really satisfied with the answers that I was getting in the, the current literature. So mm-hmm. I wanted to dig deeper and see if there were African-Americans participating in Boston churches before the African Meeting House, uh, which, was a, which was a Baptist congregation, opened. And I also noticed in studying the abolitionist movement— that a few African-Americans in Boston participated in predominantly white churches. Some of them were Unitarian churches, like Theodore Parker's church, but occasionally African-Americans popped up in other churches that were not uh, obviously abolitionist. And that also made me wonder, what was motivating the decisions of these individual people who didn't join the Black Baptist or the Black Methodist church, but instead in the 19th century participated in a predominantly white Anglican or Episcopalian church or Unitarian church in in Boston? And so those two questions really drove me um, to dive into church records and try to find people of African descent, people who were um, indigenous Americans. And
1: I I was surprised by what I found. Hmm. Yeah, well, that leads us right into the book then. So uh, Martin Luther King Jr. has famously said that the church hour on Sunday mornings is the most segregated hour in America. And I think that's a fact that still holds true in the majority of Christian congregations today. But but you say that those accustomed to thinking about race in Christian churches in 20th century terms might be surprised to learn that this was not always the case, nor was this reality uh, a historical necessity. So explain, if you will, just the major argument that you're putting forth here in this book. Yeah, the overarching argument is that
0: northern churches, and by northern I mean sort of Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, and all of New England, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Maine, that northern churches were significantly more interracial in the 18th century than historians had assumed. Moreover, churches became more interracial in the period of the American Revolution and into the early republic, which was a surprising development because scholars have focused a lot of attention on the rise of separate African-American congregations after the 1790s. So because I decided that um, churches were more interracial, and I looked at about 450 congregations and tracked African-American and Native American participation rates through baptismal lists and membership lists and other records, because churches were more interracial and were interracial for longer, I argue then that the churches had a bigger impact on race relations across society. And when churches eventually become segregated, as separate, that gave moral sanction to segregation across Northern society in the 19th century.
1: Hmm. So we'll kind of walk through some of this uh, uh, chronologically. So you say that um, American religious historiography has incorrectly coupled the First Great Awakening with an increase in participation of, of Black and Indian converts, but that revivalism is an inadequate explanation for this. In, in fact, you claim that religious practice for racial minorities was just as varied as it was for white Protestants. So explain what's going on here and what were the motivations for Black and Indian participation in Christian churches during this time?
0: It's a complicated story. Uh, and that's why I say that it Uh, the Great Awakening is not enough of an explanation for the origins of Native American and African American Christianity in the North. All people are complex. There are a wide variety of practical and principled reasons why individual people choose to attend or join churches. Hmm. And especially when we're talking about African Americans, Native Americans in the colonial era, we're talking about people who are facing oppression, enslavement, dispossession, their choices are severely limited. Their options are severely limited uh, given the place they are in these societies. But when looking um, at congregations across the denominational spectrum, we see that there were different reasons for different people, and and, um, particularly with the the Anglican Church, the Church of England Mm. in the colonial era. Many of the northern churches, Anglican churches, offered free education, free classes to enslaved African-Americans or enslaved uh, Africans. And I think that the opportunity to gain an education, it's a religious education, but it often included the ability to read, learning how to read. The access to education was a strong motivation throughout the 18th century and into the 19th century. For African Americans to choose, to the extent that they had choice, to choose to participate in, to baptize their children in, to take communion in, uh, Church of England parishes. And so if we look only at revivalism, and certainly other African Americans found the revivalist churches really appealing. A lot of African Americans, relative to other churches, participated in Old South Church in Boston, which was a center of the Whitfield revival in the 1840. So there are many African-Americans who find the revivalism appealing. I'm not, I'm not objecting to that. Um, I'm just saying that's not sufficient for understanding all of African-American r- religious participation, mm-hmm. uh, nor the full origins of African-American Christianity
1: in the North. Now, I did appreciate in the book how you delineated the difference between what was happening in the Mid-Atlantic region versus New England. What were some of the major differences that you found between those two areas? Yeah, I thought this was
0: really a fascinating part as well and helps us to understand how slavery varied from colony to colony uh, and how it varied even uh, between New York and Connecticut. And one way that slavery varied amongst the North um, was based on the religious denominations that predominated in any given place. Because the different denominations in the 18th century had different uh, requirements for baptism and different requirements for church membership. It made some churches more accessible to indigenous people and enslaved African-Americans, whereas other churches uh, were less accessible. So in in places that had mostly congregational churches, they were relatively accessible. And so in those places, Native Americans and African Americans had access to churches. And we see a lot of evidence of them using Christianity to uh, argue for emancipation, to seek other practical benefits. Whereas some parts of New Jersey and New York, where Presbyterian churches or Dutch Reformed churches predominated, Those churches put more barriers uh, for adults seeking baptism, seeking a formal affiliation with the church in the 18th century. And that made it harder for enslaved black people to participate in those churches and to use those churches as institutional means um, to seek their benefit. And um, so slavery differed dramatically in those different contexts. In one, enslaved people are participating in the main social and religious institution of the town. Uh, They have some rights and privileges, not equal rights or privileges. I say these churches are interracial. They're not integrated. They have um, some rights and privileges. They have some access, but they're not treated with equality in these congregations. But if if we're looking at how slavery differed in New York or Connecticut or how it differed in different parts of the North, um, some of these religious differences do matter in terms of access to education, access to religious rituals, and to the the arguments
1: um, that enslaved people made for their liberation. Hmm. Well, so you hit on this uh, just a bit here, but you note uh, that just because there was diversity present in these congregations does not mean that there was harmony uh, by any means. And, and just the fact of slavery uh, was a source of great tension in these churches. You, you start off your second chapter, you tell this great story of a, a slave who began sort of preaching a sermon in for entertainment for a group of guests at first, but the sermon turns into sort of a very bold proclamation of justice and a condemnation of the slave's master. And you say that, uh, and I'm quoting here, a benefit of Christianity for this enslaved man was a theology that could be used to criticize his master. Talk talk about the presence of these social tensions in slave society and and in these churches during this time.
0: Yeah, certainly we know that enslaved people throughout the Americas did not passively accept slavery. Mm. They resisted in all sorts of means. And um, religion was one category. Um, across the Americas, where enslaved people sometimes, and and not exclusively, argued for their humanity uh, and sometimes argued for their liberation. And there are limited examples of this. There are not a whole lot of um, documents that give us a clear understanding of the relationships between people who... Uh, claim to own other people as slaves uh, and and the enslaved themselves. The historical record um, doesn't give us the voice very often of enslaved people, uh, Mm. but sometimes it does. And and I also say that their actions speak loudly. The actions of enslaved people speak loudly. And for example, there's an enslaved man named Nim in Litchfield, Connecticut, who kept occupying... A gallery pew that was reserved only for white people, hmm. and it ended up being uh, causing a, a physical alteration where where some young white men threw him out of the pew, and it hmm. ended up in a court case. Now we know about it because of the court case; there was a record of it. But we don't know in many other cases what these interactions were. Uh, another another example: Greenwich, um, in the in Connecticut, uh, enslaved man gave a sermon of sorts and argued that, that he should be free. He should be liberated because of Scripture. He, he built this argument uh, off of Scripture. And this is long before white Christians in the North are making a connection between Christianity and end and to slavery and freedom.
1: Hmm. So now the situation with, with Native Americans in New England was was a bit different. Um, and in fact, you note a, a significant transformation that happened. Um, you note, I'm quoting here, almost as quickly and dramatically as many Indians in southern New England affiliated with congregational churches during the 1730s and early 1740s, so too did their affiliation end. So what caused this uh, dramatic shift in the Native American population during this time?
0: Yeah, That's a great question. I think it's really important, especially when we're looking at the North, to talk about both Native Americans and African Americans. These are very different populations um, in many regards, but they're both affiliating with churches, participating in Christianity in some ways, mm-hmm. um, not always the same ways. Um, but looking at them together illuminates many important differences. So there are Native American churches that go back to, to the mid 17th century in Massachusetts, there wasn't that longer history of Indian churches in Connecticut and Rhode Island, uh, or on Long Island. Mm. And so, during the 18th century, many Congregational ministers and some Anglican ministers sought to reach out to the indigenous communities nearby their parishes, and they they offered education, they gave sermons, they they sought to convert. Uh, the Native American populations, oftentimes near their own church communities. And gradually, uh, the, the Native Americans are exposed to Christianity and exposed to literacy. And during the late 1730s and early 1740s, significant numbers, in some cases, large portions of indigenous communities attended a predominantly white church. Uh, uh, many were baptized, some became members. But many of them withdrew rather quickly, as, as you indicated with that quotation, mm. to practice Christianity on their own. They had relatively more resources than enslaved African-Americans. There were Native Americans who were enslaved. There were Native Americans who were in bonded labor, either because of debt or because of courts ordering them to become indentured servants. Uh, but on the whole, they have more autonomy and many of them have land reserves still in Connecticut, Rhode Island, and Long Island. And so that autonomous land reserves, the long history of independence, of of community governance, enables them to make the choice to run their own churches independent of white oversight much quicker, much sooner than African Americans who overwhelmingly remain enslaved until the 19th century in the north hmm. and it's what also makes it really possible for these separate native american churches to to be formed and flourished are many native americans who become ordained ministers samson Olcomb is well educated he's trained in theology by congregational and presbyterian ministers and becomes the first um, Mohican, first negative American, to be ordained as a Presbyterian minister. And he helps form a separate church uh, at Montauk on Long Island. Samuel Niles is ordained by his own community and leads the Narragansett church for a long time in the Narragans- Narragansett community in Rhode Island. And so having the resources of ministers, land, autonomy, even though they faced it devastating consequences of colonization allowed them to to practice Christianity and really make it their own right it can be the sermons can be in their language not in English um, they can incorporate and and change and adapt and we need to take seriously when they say that they're Christians and and they define what that means
1: hmm So in the 1760s, uh, you show that there was another significant transformation happening in the northern colonies where an expansion of interracial religious worship happened that was tied to evangelical missionary activity um, that was really seeking to benefit less fortunate people of the society. And you say that while history or the history of American churches has tended to emphasize the conflict of the revolutionary period. By focusing on race and evangelism, the scene seems to actually be much more stable until after 1975. I I guess discuss this uh, a bit, and why is this finding important for American religious historiography?
0: Yeah, so the period of the imperial crises, sort of 1764 to about 1776, uh, if we look at the history of the United States, especially uh, for talking about political and social history that is an era uh, of a lot of turmoil um, a lot of protests a lot of uh, boycotts and um, and so it's a very contentious era I found it really interesting that despite all of the political confrontation the religious life in the north stayed relatively consistent hmm. um, and and in some ways that that makes sense, right? If, if it's a period of crisis, um, sometimes people are, are more concerned with religion than, than maybe they wouldn't, would be in other cases. Um, so even some people involved in protests and organizing against British imperial policies are still going to, to church, having their family members baptized and bringing their enslaved family members, the, you know, the people who are enslaved in their household to church and some of them are continuing to participate in the churches despite everything else going on. And I think that's an important for emphasizing um, the, the cont- contested nature of that moment, mm-hmm. um, but also the continuities. Mm. Right? The era is not all about change and the, the revolution wasn't inevitable uh, in, in the particular ways that it happened. And churches certainly played a role in the lead-up to the revolution. Uh, Many people who ended up being patriots or Tories um, or loyalists, many participated in days of of fasting and prayer. It was a common response to the imperial crises, uh, was to to have days of fasting and prayer. Mm -hmm. And white and black Christians in, in northern cities and in Boston participated in those churches because it was it was important to their lives. It was a normal part of the rhythms of life that went on, even though there's so much political turmoil going on in, in some of these years in, in Boston and New York and, and Philadelphia.
1: Hmm. That's really interesting. So now after the Revolutionary War, you note that the expansion of interracial churches that had started in the 1760s really continued. And in fact, in Included examples of African American and Native American leadership. You note um, figures such as uh, Lemuel Haynes and Harry Hosier, a black uh, congregationalist and a black Methodist preacher, that they really took leadership roles even in the in the spread of these kinds of uh, worship. What was the historical situation in these post-revolutionary years?
0: The post-revolution era was a period of expanding Christianity. Uh, the Anglican Church had to be reformatted um, and becomes the, the American Episcopalian Church. Mm-hmm. Um, Methodist churches went through a, a major expansion following the Revolution. Uh, churches that had had ties to Europe cre- created their own independent American denominations, including um, the Reformed Church. And the Reformed Church, when they created their constitution— um, again, sort of reflecting the fact that, that this is now a, a democratic republic with a constitution. When when the, these denominations created their new constitutions, we see influences of the American Revolution on these new Christian denominations in America. And one thing that's really interesting about the Dutch reform case was that their constitution explicitly prohibited discrimination against African Americans in the churches. And a lot of pastors took this requirement to provide access to sacraments really seriously. Mm. And so you have churches that are committing themselves to more access and, and more relative equality in their founding constitution. And you have in, in places like New York and New Jersey, many African-Americans seeking Church communities to participate in, to have their children baptized in, to get baptized themselves. And at that moment, there's a major expansion of Black participation in Reformed churches. Reformed churches had generally excluded African-Americans throughout most of the 18th century, but that changes dramatically after the Revolution. Uh, Presbyterians likewise. The Presbyterians started to change a little bit in the 1760s, but then instituted policies after the Revolution that made their sacraments more accessible to free and enslaved African-Americans. So there's a growing number of options for African-Americans following the Revolutionary War in terms of which churches they can participate in. And the number of options grows dramatically after 1790 when African-Americans start forming their own separate congregations, particularly in Philadelphia and New York City. Hmm. So it's really about the growth of African-American Christianity uh, and the growth in the number of churches, uh, Baptist, Methodist, Reformed, Presbyterian, who are actively seeking out and welcoming enough to African-Americans that they are joining those predominantly white churches, sometimes in substantial numbers.
1: I wanted to ask about one of those denominations specifically. You have this really interesting chart in chapter four that breaks down the percentage of African-American membership in Methodist societies in the Mid-Atlantic. And of the 18 churches that you note, only two of them had had no African-American members. And in fact, you note that – I I believe it's John Street Methodist Episcopal Church in New York. Uh, They had over 15% of its congregation uh, was black. I was just kind of curious, what made the early Methodist movement um, so open to, to interracial worship during this time? Was there anything particularly surprising that you found in your research there?
0: Yeah. So Methodism begins as a reform movement in the church of England. It starts in England and then is imported into the colonies. And early on, Methodists are still being baptized and still taking communion at Anglican parishes, Church of England parishes. Mm-hmm. And It's not until again, after the revolution that they form an American denomination um, and and, are, and ordain ministers and, and create bishops. But from the very beginning, from the time that the first Methodist class meetings are happening in New York City uh, and then elsewhere in the 1760s, they seem to be seeking out and welcoming African-Americans um, from the very beginning. It, it just seems to be sort of part of their their organization from the start that they are going out and preaching to everyone who will listen uh, and welcoming anyone who will come in to hear their um, message. And so the, the active engagement, the act of seeking out was certainly an important part of that. Because they're a reform movement, of the Church of England, um, they're naturally going to be reaching out to members of the Church of England. And as I just showed earlier in the book, because most northern Church of England parishes included black people, uh, sometimes in really high numbers, it's natural then that as Methodists are reaching out to other Anglicans, trying to get them to participate in the Methodist meetings, that their audience at the Anglican churches would include a lot of black Anglicans. Hmm. Um, Another crucial component is that Methodists were anti-slavery from very early on. And that anti-slavery message uh, certainly resonated with enslaved people. Now, enslaved African-Americans don't all go to Methodist churches. They're they're making decisions again for different reasons. And and we see an increase in African-Americans participating in some Anglican churches and some Baptist churches and some, Uh, Reformed Presbyterian churches who are not making an anti-slavery statement, who are not taking an anti-slavery stand. So the political considerations and liberations are not the only thing motivating church attendance. Hmm. Uh, But certainly with the Methodists, it's one added reason, one added benefit of why Methodism is appealing early on is because it's it's more egalitarian, it's more welcoming, uh, and it's anti-slavery than some of the other denominations in the Mid-Atlantic in particular.
1: Hmm. Uh, It's a very interesting story. So um, I I think one of the most important interventions that you make in this book is that you show that while American religious historiography has tended to see the formation of separate black churches after 1790, and thinking specifically of Richard Allen and the beginnings of the African Methodist Episcopal Church, the, the standard historiography has sort of seen that as the end of interracial worship in the northern states. You show, in fact, African-American religious activity was also increasing in majority white churches between 1791 and 1820. So I, I guess explain what was going on in this period. Why have historians largely ignored this trend? We, we should rightly focus a lot of attention
0: on Richard Allen, Absalom Jones, Peter Williams, Sr., Peter Williams, Jr., um, Thomas Paul, many uh, eloquent, important ministers who founded congregations in the North. Right, their stories are are fascinating. Right, many of them obtained liberty, you know, gained gained their own freedom, uh, formed congregations, worked tirelessly uh, their whole lives for the betterment of their communities. Um, and so, there, it's it's not surprising uh, to to focus on on these remarkable. Um, pastors and their, their remarkable congregations. Um, and and I, I talk about them too, because I think, I think they're fascinating. Uh, but I think part of what we missed was that historians had not taken the time to go through the hundreds of church records and really counting, hmm. counting the number of African Americans, um, Native Americans, Afro-Indians who are in Predominantly white church records, right? It's it's time consuming, um, and it's little bits of information, right? It's not remarkable stories. We don't have uh, autobiographies from most African American Christians from this time period, but we have a a great source like Richard Allen's autobiography, Mm. Um, and so I think the the source issue um, and the remarkable stories of. African-American churches, African-American leaders maybe made us go focus on, on that for longer. Um, and I don't think we should stop focusing on them. I think there's more work to be done on mm-hmm. on some of those congregations that are formed. Um, but I do think it is really important to understand the full picture that African-American Christianity in all its forms is growing in the North between the 1790s and and 1820s, that African-Americans continue to face restrictions. Not every African-American in the North lives in a major city where there are enough people to form a separate Black church. Many African-Americans in the North live in small towns, live on farms, in communities where there are not enough African-Americans to form a separate church. And their conditions, their story, needs to be part of our understanding of uh, slavery and post-slavery in the North. Uh, and so many of them continue to participate in a white church um, or maybe participate in a white church for the first time because the church is more welcoming to them now. Um, and they don't have the option because they're not in a, in a big city, but even in some of the cities there, there might be reasons why African-Americans continue to go to a predominantly white church and not to an African-American church. And an African-American who believes in in Unitarian theology is probably not going to go to the African-American Baptist Church. And Mm. so factoring in the diversity of of religious point of views and religious experiences uh, in 19th century African-American life is also an important goal for me in that chapter. Mm.
1: Well, it's certainly a reminder of just the importance of archival work. Um, And so I, I thought that was just a really, really interesting discussion that you have there. So kind of moving on, by the 1830s, uh, you know the situation had grown quite dire for race relations, um, that Northern whites had really become fully committed to discrimination and, and segregation as slavery was ending in many of the Northern states. Um, you also have this really interesting discussion on terminology uh, as it appears in some of the church records. And, and you say that this really complicates the historical narrative uh, of northern progressivism and opposition to slavery in the South, I guess, just talk about some of those changes. What what was going on during this period, and 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 why was it so significant for uh, the trajectory of interracial worship?
0: Yeah, we might expect at the moment in time when white northern churches uh, and white northern organizations are beginning to make louder critiques of antebellum Southern slavery, we might expect at that moment that the churches would be welcoming to African-Americans who have not stopped in their fight against slavery where it still existed. Um, But but the irony here is that actually churches have never been more separate, never been more segregated. And there's really a a steep drop-off in the 1820s, in the number of interracial churches in the north, across denominations. And that means that in in this moment, when churches are becoming divided along racial lines, um, many parts of society are also becoming divided along racial lines. And the churches dividing along racial lines gives moral sanction to segregation in employment and transportation. In the 1820s, we have the first riots against African American communities in the North. Having obtained freedom, found employment, built jobs, built um, businesses, African American communities have have begun to, to raise themselves. They've built churches. They have uh, distinct, separate communities in some northern cities, and those communities become targets of white mobs who come and destroy churches, destroy homes, destroy businesses at the same moment as demanding segregation in all work environments and segregation in education and segregation across society. And so it's really a a dire moment uh, for race relations. Much like Jim Jim Crow segregation gets instituted in the South, after the Civil War, after slavery ended, there's a similar thing happening in the North in the 1820s and 1830s, as slavery has ended in the North, segregation, in some ways, replaces this, the former slavery uh, as a way of uh, oppressing people of color in the North, uh, and the North also imagines white, white Northerners also imagine that Native Americans have disappeared from their midst. Well, some of the Native Americans are actually, um, in the black communities, black urban communities, but other Native Americans certainly have not disappeared. They still live in the same places sometimes where their ancestors have lived for, um, many, many, many generations. But white northerners have convinced themselves that, that the Indians have disappeared and are actually quali- uh, classifying them as people of color or colored people. Uh, sometimes the church records just say colored. And so when white northerners convince themselves that that Indians have disappeared uh, and but what they really do is reclassifying them in the same category as African Americans, uh, we see this this really shift away from interaction, um, and interracial churches hmm.
1: so you make you make this very interesting point in your conclusion that the the Fugitive Slave Act of eighteen fifty made the creation of separate African American churches really a necessity in the north i I never really made that connection before, but it's a great point, and it's um it's a great reminder that that political actions happening during this period had uh, religious ramifications as well, and the creation of segregated churches became a source of political and spiritual action during this time. I'm not sure I necessarily have a question on that. It was just a really interesting point and a sort of a great reminder of how everything is so interconnected uh, during this period, and always is, of course.
0: Yeah, and you know, one of the African-American Baptist churches in Boston was known as the Fugitive Slave Church, The minister had had helped people gain their freedom on the Underground Railroad. uh, Lemuel Grimes. Um, The church included many people who had liberated themselves, and many of them felt that, despite the strength of the Black community in Boston, that they they couldn't stay in 1850. They had had to flee, Um, and by 1850, really, churches had not uh, white churches had not shown. An understanding and a willingness to take care of the practical needs of African Americans and Native Americans. It's in the, the 1830s, and I spent a lot of time um, with William Apis and David Walker uh, because I think they show really the full extent of the diversion that has ha- the division that has happened between white and Black and Native American Christians in the North. Mm. Um, So David Walker and and William Apis, both coming uh, from Methodist churches, argue a sort of a radical Christian critique of white Christians in the North. And they they really reverse the the rhetoric of colonialism, of of imperialism. Uh, They're saying that people of color, that African Americans, Native Americans are Real Christians, and you can tell they're real Christians because of their actions, Uh, even their actions towards their enemies, right? Love Mm. for enemy. Uh, And they say that white Christians are pretend Christians, that they are not actually following the Christianity of Jesus Christ, and that if they want to avoid God's judgment against them, they should convert. And it, it's it's a remarkable reversal of the logic of of European colonialism, of, of the need to go to the New World, quote unquote, and to convert the people here, and and the justifications for enslavement of Africans was often that they will be introduced to Christianity. Right, so it's a it's a full reversal of that 17th century uh, religious justification for colonialism and slavery. Hmm.
1: Well, Dr. Bowles, we thank you so much for your time today. Before we uh, finish up, I uh, wanted to just ask, what, what uh, future projects are you working on now or have upcoming?
0: Yeah, I'm doing um, currently a little bit more work on Lemuel Haynes. Um, mm. The Congregational Library in Boston has a, a project called um, New England's Hidden Histories, which is a, a digitization project of, of church records. Uh, Many of the church records that I looked at in person um, at at the library in in Boston are now uh, available digitally, Mm -hmm. um, and many of them are transcribed. And so they found some original letters from Lemuel Haynes, who is the first African-American ordained as a congregational minister. He also served in the Revolutionary War. And these are really fascinating letters. We knew some parts of these letters appeared in in a biography, but there's other parts that um, were not transcribed in the in the nineteenth century biography, and so trying to um, sort of interpret and explain these letters, um, get transcriptions available, um, is is what I'm focused on right now. the The next sort of bigger projects I'm I'm thinking about are all involving religious diversity in early America, um, the the long term religious diversity that really uh, has been. A part of american religious history since the very beginning um, since um, the continent's uh, origins it has always been religiously diverse and during european colonialism and the 19th century it becomes more religiously diverse um, so i'm working on, on probably a book length project on that and i want to spend some more time this is much longer term project looking more at the religious interactions among Native Americans and African Americans, uh, especially interactions that happen apart from white people. Um, So there are some African Americans who were missionaries to Native Americans. Uh, Some of the Native American churches that I I talk about in my book um, welcomed African American members of, of these sort of Indian churches. And so I'd, I'd like to do another book that focuses more exclusively on religious interactions, religious developments among um, the relationships and, and interactions of, of Native Americans
1: and African Americans. Hmm. Well, that sounds fascinating. We will absolutely look forward to, uh, to that. Uh, So thanks again uh, to Dr. Richard uh, Bowles. He is the author of Dividing the Faith, the Rise of Segregated Churches in the Early American North, published in 2020 by New York University Press. Uh, Dr. Bowles, thanks for your work on this book, and especially thanks for taking the time today to discuss it with us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to New Books in History on the New Books Network. Do make sure to subscribe to our feed wherever you get your podcasts so that you can keep up with the latest and greatest in books and ideas in this year. Thanks for listening and take care.